the woman said to me, the key thing she said to me was, listen, you've clearly got a problem. If you're interested in giving up for good, then we can help you. If you're only interested in cutting down, we can't help you. So go away and think about (laughs) what it is you want to do. And that kind of binary choice, that kind of unilateral decision is something that I can really get behind because I'm a man of extremes. I've got an addictive personality. So cutting down sounds like a hassle and difficult. But stopping forever and almost defining myself by my sobriety was something I could immediately engage with the idea. I could see myself as that guy. I could see myself as the guy who said in the pub, I don't drink, why not? Because I don't drink, I'm teetotal. I couldn't see myself as the sort of guy who went, I'm just not drinking at the moment. I'm trying to cut down in the week. Because I thought, that guy sounds boring and dreary. But the guy who says, no, I just simply don't drink, that sounds quite interesting. (laughs) you know. So I got behind that and that's who I became. Welcome to the Tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 153. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast, Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we know that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. I realised that I had a problem with alcohol as I was drinking every day and four to five days could be considered very heavy drinking. I've been drinking for decades. I managed life, but the older I got, the more tired and anxious I felt the next day. Something had to change. Addiction is the opposite of connection. Tribe Sober's connection to others with the same issue, podcasts, email, psychoeducation and shared wins. I'm on day 10 of first in years. I'm in it for me so that I can experience the joy of sobriety. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. We've also got our Sober 66 Challenge starting on the 20th of March. 66 days to help you do a sober spring or a sober autumn if you're in the southern hemisphere like me. Online, community and audio support for 66 days. Just go to tribesober.com. You'll see the info on the homepage. Oh, and if you're on Twitter, please follow our brand new account. It's called at tribesoberpod. Thanks to you, our lovely listeners, we're heading for 200,000 downloads. So we decided that the Tribe Sober podcast deserved a Twitter account of its very own so that we can connect with our awesome guests. So please follow at Tribe Sober Pod and join the conversation. 
My guest this week is Sam Delaney, and he's very active on Twitter. You can follow him at Delaneyman. Sam is a journalist and a broadcaster. I contacted him after I found his article in The Guardian, saying that he's having more fun than ever now that he is sober. And he's seven years sober, just like me. Sam actually hosts two podcasts himself, one of which is called The Reset. It's a podcast in which he chats to guests about mental health, addiction and recovery. And he's just published a new book called Sort Your Head Out, Mental Health Without the Bollocks. You've got to love that subtitle. I began by asking Sam to introduce himself. I'm a journalist and a broadcaster. I've worked in the British media for about 25 years now. Grew up in London, still live here now, don't live particularly far from where I grew up. And I've got a wife, she also works in the media, and two children who are 15 and 11. I suppose the reason I'm here today is I've been sober, well, it'll be eight years in, in this June. So I guess that's just over seven and a half years. And this year in February, I published a book about my story, getting sober, addressing my mental health issues and so forth. And that's called Sort Your Head Out, Mental Health Without All the Bollocks. And it's aimed at what I call recovering lads. I mean, I hope that there's <laughs> something in there yeah. for everyone. But there it is. certainly was the book I needed 10 years ago when I first started tackling this stuff. And I, I call my tribe kind of recovering Jack the Lads who are having to, to realise that you've got to come to terms a little bit with your inner life. Yeah, no, I love it. I mean, as you know, I think it's going to reach a population that really need it. So, Sam, let's dive into the drinking story, shall we? I think it started at the tender age of 12. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I grew up in a culture, as most people of my generation did, of, you know, surrounded by booze. Booze seemed sort of glamorous and fun. And there was a blokiness about it. I grew up in a single parent household in the council house in West London with three older brothers who were, you know, a generation older than me. They were about 10 years older than me. They were all born very close together within a couple of, within three years of each other. And then I came like a decade later. So I really looked up to them. Their lifestyle surrounded football, beer, the pub, banter and all that other sort of laddie stuff that seemed normal to me, seemed like a lot of fun. And at the school I went to, every lad I knew had the same perception of that. We were all going down the park to the local wreck or what have you from about the age of 12 onwards drinking warm cans of beer that people had nicked from their parents' cupboards or what have you. And it just sort of grew from there. It was very, very normalised. It wasn't like I was the exception by any means. It was all kids. I went to a comprehensive school where there was a real mix as well in terms of social class. There was a lot of kids from much more deprived backgrounds than mine, but there was also a lot of kids from much more advantageous backgrounds than mine. It was a real mix, but it didn't make any difference to in terms of the kids who were drinking and then eventually smoking weed and all the rest of it at a very young age. It was all of them, rich, poor, you know, it was, just, it, it was very much the culture then. Don't know if it still is. I've got a teenage daughter now. My wife actually went to school with me and we often look back at the way we were and look at our daughter and our son now and think, blimey, they're, they're living a much more sort of sedate kind of lifestyle than, than we were, in all honesty. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I read a stat the other day saying that uh, something like 25% of young British people don't drink. And I thought, wow, that's quite mm. something. 
I think that they've got more things to do than we did. It's as simple as that. I think we yeah. drank out of boredom. I think we had a huge amount of time on our hands. Our generation was very much like our parents were working. A lot of us were latchkey kids. There was a lot of divorce around. I'm sure there still is, by the way. But what I mean is a lot of my mates and I, we were kind of like left to our own devices a lot. And there yeah, wasn't much yeah. to do. There just wasn't much to yeah, do. Me too. You know, where, where where would you yeah. go? Where would you hang out? And so kids just sort yeah. of got into drinking and, and smoking weed because it was, it was something to do. We didn't have much else. Now they've got their phones, their laptops and all the rest of it. I know it sounds like I'm an old fart being a cliche about technology. But actually I'm not because I think <laughs> it's a positive. There's a a, a huge amount of negative things that we can say about our kids having this technology in their lives and social media. But sometimes you've got to look at the positives. I know in in Great Britain, you know, the world is a less violent place than it was. You you hear a lot of bad horror stories in the papers about knife crime and stuff. But if you look at the actual stats in comparison to the 80s, the streets are much safer, right? Because you didn't just go out of an evening and just hang around on the street because you were too young to go to a pub or a club. So you just hung around on the street in groups of mates, freezing cold, drinking alcohol and bumping into other kids. I think back then violence was a hobby just like drinking was. Now, you you know, it's just people aren't out on the streets getting up to this sorts of nonsense, you know. Yeah, you're so right. They don't go out looking for trouble so much. Yeah, I mean, I I always say that drinking is great fun until it's not. And my drinking career certainly went that way. But to me, it sounds like your drinking probably was great fun until your late 30s, really. And then it got rather dark, didn't it? Tell us about that period. You're right. I was a a good time drinker. Never saw myself as problematic. Was never anywhere near the worst people in any of my peer groups, whether that be the lads I went to football with, my own family, or the kids I went to school with. And then as I get older, working in in the media, where there's obviously quite a lot of drinking and hedonism, I was never a standout drinker. I was known to like a a beer or two, but I was never like a a, a standout problematic drinker. In my late 30s, I think that what got on top of me was the combined pressures of family, career, and maintaining a sort of a social life and, and the kind of Jack the Lad persona that I'd always presented publicly. And trying to maintain all of those things, I really began to sink under the pressure. I was exhausted emotionally, mentally and physically, very tired from having young children. Started to feel really wiped out by that. Started to get depressed and hugely anxious, very worried about the future all the time. Consumed by feelings of failure and panic. But crucially, I didn't confront those feelings and I didn't share those feelings with everyone because I was ashamed of them. I thought it was first world problem stuff. I thought, look at me, I've got a great yeah. career, great family. What have I got to be moaning about? I don't want to be that guy. And so very simply, I began to self-medicate because I was yeah. ashamed and uh, with my feelings. I felt alone with my feelings and I tried to just drink my way out of them. And in the last couple of years of my 30s, I'm sort of... 2013, 2014 were my really bad years, I think. That was when it crept into a lot of very secretive drinking in the daytime and also drink and then kind of drinking all day and then doing a lot of staying up all night after my family had gone to bed and getting stuck into the booze then, going to bed, getting a few hours sleep, waking up, starting very early again the next morning. So that was where it arrived at in my late 30s. 
You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah, yeah. From from reading the book, it was almost as if you were using it as fuel, you know, just to keep going. You know, the fun mm. was long gone, wasn't it? It was you were yeah, in survival I, I wasn't, mode. Really. I wasn't enjoying myself at all, but I was telling myself a lot of false narratives, which of course is so common with all people who fall into problem drinking. And I think the 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 one of the key and in, on reflection maddest false narratives I was telling myself was, oh. Um, this is what I need to do. In many ways, I'm doing this for my family because I the amount I need to do in order to bring the money in, maintain the standard of living, keep going, keep committing the time I need to family, all of this stuff, I need to fuel myself. I mean, my drinking went hand in hand with a, a lot of cocaine use as well at the time. And um, those two things together were just basically... They were, it was physical fuel and emotional fuel to just get me through one day to the next. And I suppose I was telling myself in the back of my mind, no one would understand this, but I understand that yeah. this is what's actually required. And actually, this doesn't affect anyone else. That was the other false narrative in my head. I, I was convinced that I was yeah. keeping it so separate and secret that it wasn't really having an impact on my wife or my kids or anyone else around me. I was convinced of that. and uh, But no, I was not having fun at all. I felt miserable really miserable for a couple of years and what did your wife say during this period was she on to you or were you so secretive you she didn't Uh, even know about it eventually she was on to me but like it was quite interesting because in our life together and we've been together since we were 20 you know when we were first together like a lot of couples we were sort of shared in the kind of partying and all the rest of it and she she liked going out and having drinks and 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 so on but she just seemed to grow out of that naturally. It was there wasn't a big moment. She just sort of drifted out of it in a way that a, a, a lot of people yeah. do who, who don't have addictive. She grew up. <laughs> she grew up way before I did, and I feel so privileged that she kind of waited for me to catch up, which oh. took me a, a good yeah. few years, you know. <laughs> and I, and I used to say to her, I always had guilt around drinking, even before my drinking got very out of hand I always sort of had a a sense of guilt and paranoia about it so I'd go out on a Friday night have a big night and then the next day and this is going back to my 20s I'd wake up riddled with anxiety and regret and paranoia Mm. oh am I drinking too much oh have I let it get out of hand oh did I make a fool of myself and she would very often make me feel better about it and go listen don't beat yourself up about this if you want to go out and have a drink have a drink that's your choice but you can't waste the whole next two days like worrying about the fact you did it either do it or don't do it and so she was kind of like that and and so in some ways I wouldn't say she facilitated my drinking but she tried to make me feel less guilty about it and so then when she did eventually turn around to me and start saying I'm worried about your drinking you're drinking too much I'm actually worried she wasn't angry she was worried and upset I was that was a big wake-up call because she wasn't the sort of person who I associated with being judgy right or or no, naggy no. she wasn't like so she's yeah. saying something like, oh it's bad and she wasn't ever judgy or naggy she was just plain worried about me and I reacted in a way that I think a lot of problem drinkers do is that I was pretty hostile even though she was effectively being kind she didn't know how yeah. to address it she didn't have any experience of dealing with someone with an addiction which is a very difficult thing to do and she um she was being kind, but she didn't know exactly how to approach it. And I was really hostile and pretty mean. Yeah. And I would turn it round on her and say, you're just boring and you're trying to control me. You're a control freak. 
that was basically that was the gist of the sort of things that I would say yeah. and think about her during that time. So what was it that made you decide to make the change to check yourself into the Priory? Was it a moment that a night that went horribly wrong or just a gradual sense of unease? I can't do this anymore. Yeah, it wasn't a rock bottom. And I, I always say in my writing, like some people hit rock bottom. But the problem is, is this phrase rock bottom. You, you talked about false narratives there. And this stereotype that we all have of the homeless, drunk you know, in the park, yeah. we we always think, well, I'm not like him, so I'm fine. It's almost as if, but as long as we're holding it all job. together. I know plenty yeah. of people who've got, like, a good job, yeah, decent yeah. amount Me of too. money in the bank, nice car. Yeah. But it's quite clear yeah. that their drinking isn't particularly making them happy. And it also yeah. is, is affecting the people around them. And in a way, they're being yeah. gaslit by alcohol. You know, really, because yeah. they think alcohol's yeah. kind of telling them, look, this is your right. I thought drinking was like an expression of freedom, which is hilarious because now I think it's like drinking as being just a prison that totally limits yeah, your life me too. to just one thing. You know, drinking is like, it's the most unimaginative way to live your life is to be a drinker, I think, because it's like you're operating I'd at one so speed all the that. time. Yeah. Had a good day, you're drunk. Had a bad day, you're drunk. At a normal, average day, you're drunk. You always feel the same. Yeah. Your reaction to every yeah. emotion is the same. It's just one feeling. The other thing is you just stop being able to enjoy anything yeah, unless yeah. you are Everyday drinking. pleasure's out the window, aren't they? It's just like, all about... I used to find it so funny drink. when people go, oh, let's go for a walk. Like, we go on a weekend away to the country <laughs> to a mate. I've got a mate who's got a place in the country, and we'd all go away. And everyone would be like, or my wife and some of the other people would be like, right, brilliant, let's get up early and go for a long walk. And I'd just be thinking, hang on a minute, that's so boring. What we want to do, we're in the country. So the, the thing is, what we do is we, we laze about all morning until it's uh, an acceptable time to hit a lovely country pub. If we're walking, exactly. it should be to a pub, right? And then we can get drunk. And it's like, but just walking for its own self is boring. Now you sort yeah. of think, what what a way to ruin being in a beautiful place um, with no stresses or strains of work, a change of environment around beauty and nature with good friends, sharing great moments. What a way to just ruin all of that is to just like get yeah. drunk as quickly as possible. So, yeah, I didn't hit a rock bottom, I don't think. I mean, it depends what you call a rock bottom. I mean, I definitely had some bad nights out where I was just like, you know, just out drinking, taking drugs, cut, coming home later than I should have done, making an idiot out of myself, all that stuff. Rock bottom, I suppose you could say, you know, drinking vodka in the morning before breakfast just to sort of wake you up. You could say those are rock bottoms. I think most people, though, have, have the idea of rock bottom of they've lost their job, they've, done, they've been yeah. arrested, slung in jail, they've been beaten up. Their wife's left and they've lost, they've lost their wife and kids. They're living on the street. These are the way that people see rock bottoms. And actually, it's, it's counterproductive to promote the idea in some yeah. ways of a rock bottom because then you've got all these drinkers who are just having miserable lives, really, but they think, well, I don't need to do anything about it until I've hit rock bottom. And then I'll yeah, get a lot yeah. of people in response to this book saying, so what was it, you know? 
There was a guy, this is really horrible, I shouldn't laugh about it, but I, I find it funny because it's so weird. A place I used to work which had a massive drinking culture, when I first announced that I wasn't drinking anymore, one of the guys said, oh, what happened? Did you kill your dog or something? He goes, it's got to be something like that, hasn't it? He, he assumed that I'd done something so terribly outrageous that it had to be a moment. And he's like, no. So the way I explain it is this. Every day I woke up for about the last year of my drinking and all I thought when I woke up in the morning was I promised myself I wouldn't drink that day because what I, with every part of my body I didn't want to drink that day. And every single day I would drink anyway and every single day I would regret it deeply. I would feel shit about myself, yeah. right? And yeah. that to me is the definition of a drink problem. You can call it alcoholism or whatever. I had a drink problem because... I didn't want to drink. My main priority, my main goal in life was not drinking. And yet I did it every yeah. day. And every day I felt yeah, awful yeah. about it. I tried and failed so many times throughout <laughs> this period to to stop. And I tried constantly thinking there's going to be a silver bullet. So I'd, I'd always be thinking of people. I could ask, I know who I'll ask. I'll ask this person. Oh, I've got a mate who's an acupuncturist. I'm going to ask him. He'll probably give me an immediate solution right he'll probably say oh, I'll send you to a, right a cure and I remember saying it to my mate who's an acupuncturist actually and saying mate I've got to have a quiet word with you it was at my 40th birthday party I said look not tonight but I've got to have a quiet word with you. I was off my face when I was saying it to him but I'm really my drinking's out of control I've got to talk to you and he went what and he went what do you want to talk to me about and I said well I want to talk to you how I can stop and he actually laughed and went go to AA <laughs> and I was like no, don't be daft. I want a good, uh, like, as if that wasn't the solution. So I thought, well, I don't know, 12 steps. Sounds like a lot of bother sitting in a room with loads of people. I don't want that. I want you to tell me that you can give me one course of acupuncture and I'll never want to drink again. So I was always looking for an easy way out. And in the end, I was just in the middle of the night. I was wide awake, which I often was in the night. My wife's sleeping next to me. My kids sleeping next to them. And I prior to it, I... I I Googled the Priory because it was the only rehab place I'd ever heard of because it's the one where celebrities yeah. go. So it's always in the papers. And it's also just around the corner from my house. So I went past it all the time. I knew I knew it and I thought I could right. walk there. And I just booked yes. in for a free assessment online. And I've got to say, the next day, I think it was the day, maybe two days later, the, the, the thing that I'd booked in the dead of night in a moment, in a, on a whim came up and... I think I probably wasn't serious about going to it, but actually the woman emailed me personally and said, are you coming to this? I know I can see you've booked in, but are you coming? And I was surprised by that. And I was taken aback. And I think I was still sort of like, nah, sod that. I'm not going to do that. That's not for me. That's really weird. But I think curiosity got the better of me. I'm a journalist and I like going and poking my nose yeah. when I'm quite nosy. And I thought, to be honest, I'm quite interested to see what goes down up there. I've walked past it a million times. This is my chance. And it was a free assessment. So it was a sliding doors moment, really. On the day that it was booked, which was in the afternoon, I happened to be at home, not in an office that day. And I just sort of on a whim, like, yeah, I think I'll just go up there. My wife was at work and I went up there. Had an extraordinary chat with a, with the the woman who still is my therapist to this day. It kind of changed my life. That night over the washing up, I just casually said to my wife, "Oh, by the way, I um I went up to the priory today." She went, "What?" She practically dropped the plate she was washing up, and I said, "Yeah." And she went, "Why?" And I said, "I had a meeting with someone about my drinking," and she went, "Oh my god!" And at first she was like, "Why didn't you tell me?" Because at the time we were in a state of mutual paranoia where I was lying and creeping around a lot 
to hide my drinking. And so she, I think she was losing trust, which she was right to be because I was like, I was I was the sort of bloke who was creeping out in the night to dump empties in a waste bin across the street and all this sort of stuff. It was just another thing that I'd done that I hadn't told her about, which wasn't really what our relationship had always been about in the past. She went, why didn't you tell me that? And I said, well, I don't know. I didn't want to say another bullshit thing to you that I hadn't followed through on. So I didn't want to tell you I'd booked it until I'd been. So now I'm telling you I actually went. And she went, how'd it go? And I said, it went really well. The woman said to me, the key thing she said to me was, listen, you've clearly got a problem. If you're interested in giving up for good, then we can help you. If you're only interested in cutting down, we can't help you. So go away and think about what it is you want to do. And that kind of binary choice, that kind of unilateral decision is something that I can really get behind because I'm a man of extremes. I've got an addictive personality. So cutting down sounds like a hassle and difficult. But stopping forever and almost defining myself by my sobriety was something I could immediately engage with the idea. I could see myself as that guy. I could see myself as the guy who said in the pub, I don't drink. Why not? Because I don't drink. I'm teetotal. I couldn't see myself as the sort of guy who went, I'm just not drinking at the moment. I'm trying to cut down in the week. Because I thought, that guy sounds boring and dreary. But the guy who says, no, I just simply don't drink, that sounds quite interesting. (laughs) You know, so I got behind that and that's who I became. Fantastic. What happened next? Did you go to AA after the well, Priory? A, Did you stay a, a, in the Priory for a period? No, I didn't. I didn't stay in. To be honest, I couldn't afford it. Yeah, it was a vicious circle, though, because it was money worries that were fueling probably my drinking because various things in my life. We bought a new house and we'd got it renovated and I was struggling to keep up. And then as a result of that worry, I started drinking more and spending more. It is true that you save money and the money I was paying to the therapist who I saw as an outpatient, I was paid to be an outpatient at the Priory and I certainly set that money off against the amount I was saving from not going to the pub or the dealer every day. But the main thing was, aside from the money, was that I I, I couldn't afford the time away from my wife and children. Maybe if I'd had my time again, I would have thought about it. But luckily for me... I started seeing therapists very regularly and going to group meetings. And that was really good for me. I also had an old, one of my older brothers had got sober about five years before me. And all my brothers sort of are quite um, big role models and figures in my life. And so having him to talk to and give practical advice, but also just be a role model. And I was actually working with him at the time, seeing him every day. So that was very helpful. But... To be honest, first two years of sobriety for me, I managed not to touch a drop of booze, but I was still pretty mad. And I'd certainly replaced it with work and exercise and sugar and all those other bad things that we can replace it with. Um, yeah, you were kind think, of white knuckling it, weren't you, really? From a what little, you say yeah. in the book, it sounded like you white knuckled it for the first couple of years. And then you had a bit of a work crisis and you went deeper then. You started to do the work, really, didn't you? Yeah, exactly that. Within months of giving up, weeks almost, I kind of started a new company, which immediately sort of skyrocketed. Everything that I'd sort of been chasing or pursuing or hoping for for the previous few years all fell into place. And part of me, of course, not that I was ever a particularly spiritual person back then, I I did sort of think, oh, well, this is like a reward from the universe 
I've got sober and look what's happened. I've immediately been rewarded with all this success and suddenly there was a lot of money coming in and all the rest of it. And I said yes to everything because I've sort of thought, well, these opportunities might never come again. So I completely overstretched myself again. But then the work just became the new addiction, the new way of yeah. avoiding having to do like any of the self-reflection that was necessary. And so I think actually my behaviour for those couple of years, I had a lot of success, a lot of fun, and I felt good about being sober. But there were also incidents, and more come back to me every day, that, that took place in the first couple of years of sobriety that were pretty mad, like uh, loss of temper, mad decisions, hubris paranoia lot lot of things the anxiety didn't really go away it's just that i didn't numb it anymore with alcohol or drugs yeah then that came to an abrupt halt in 2018 when a lot of bad things went bad very quickly and then i had no other option but to step back really and try to start looking after myself more spending way more time at home much less time working much more time resting reading then lockdown happened, which meant that I started doing a lot of meetings online in different parts of the world as well, which I found quite, again, just my curiosity was quite, um, yeah, yeah. W- w- was quite an asset to me then. So I started joining meetings in different parts of the world, doing a bit more of that. Then I started my podcast and Substack newsletter about it, which in a way created its own group. You know, I, I got a few thousand subscribers quite quickly and started to meet people through that who would get in touch with me. And it, the conversations I was having with other like-minded people like yourself were just like happening so frequently that it became like just more of an everyday conversation. Whereas before I'd just been isolated. Yeah, yeah. I, as I say, I had my brother... But I was sort of just isolated in my sobriety. I hadn't really made connections with other people, wasn't really have these kind of fascinating conversations that I now have practically every day, one way or another, with yeah, people yeah, me too, that are actually. a bit, bit like, you know, like I'm telling you my story now, a lot of, a lot of days people, it's the other way around. I'm, I'm in your chair and people are telling yeah. me their story, either in a formal way like this, we're recording a podcast, or sometimes people just get in touch and I go back and forth with them over social media or email. And and I've made lots of really good new friends in real life through all this stuff. So yeah, you, yeah. your conversations just have more depth and meaning. People aren't afraid to be vulnerable. You know, I always think it's the opposite of the kind of conversations that you have when you're drinking you know where everybody's showing off a bit and nobody's listening to anybody else repeating the same old stories but you meet somebody you know the other side of the world probably that's in recovery and within five minutes you know you're really bearing your soul almost so it's 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 really is revelatory like you know and and what's amazing is I was 40 but really I was 40 when I got sober but I like you say it was kind of probably 43 by the time I really started getting deeper into it and now I'm like my god what a shame that I wasn't like this at a younger age what a shame that I had to hit a crisis to become like this but I try not to reflect on that as wasted years because I I achieved a lot of great things (laughs) yeah yeah and I've still got plenty of time so but it is mad because you think oh only now am I able to have conversations that have real meaning and richness to them but without the other key thing that i try to stress in the book is this is not i thought if i was that part i thought it was a binary choice between being jack the lad having a laugh talking rubbish banter mucking around with your mates right or very earnest 
kind of barefooted weirdo hippie, right? Speaking in kind of Californian psychobabble. I thought that was the choice. It's not. I'm still a jet lad. I go to no. football every week. I go with my son. I see my mates in the pub. I go along and have a soft drink. I have a laugh. I do another podcast, which earns me really the majority of my living is nothing to do with mental health. It's a comedy podcast, comedy and football. And I do it with my mate Andy, who lives up in Sunderland, and we record every day, and it's got thousands of subscribers, and we talk utter nonsense, and we talk... I know. I've heard it. (laughs) We're infantile. We're dumb. It's, It's somehow very popular. It pays my mortgage, and all I do is muck around and be a jack the lad on it. What I'm saying is, is that you don't have to trade all of that in, right? If you're a bloke who grew up like me and you grew up in that culture, being loud and daft and all the rest of it, I always say we grew up, we were the generation who took nothing seriously, least of all ourselves, right? You don't have to become all serious. You do have to be a little bit more serious about yourself, but that doesn't mean you have to be self-important. doesn't mean you have to kind of become someone who thinks that their, their story is more important than the next person's, right? Or you take yourself, you kind of elevate yourself. You don't. What it is is look inwards, have a little bit, show yourself a bit more love and kindness, have a little bit more sympathy for yourself. That will serve you well. Yeah. And you also said in your recent article in The Guardian that we have to change our perception of fun. I thought that was interesting. Can you explain that a bit? Well... Going back to what I said really earlier is that, like, fun when you're drinking is drinking. Like, get it right. It's just drinking. You might ask someone who drinks, what do you do for fun? And they go, well, lots of things. I love to see family and friends. I love to go to music concerts. I love to go and watch sport. Whatever it is, all of the things they're saying are vehicles for alcohol consumption, in my opinion. They very re- And going back, like using my example of a weekend in the country, right? Oh, I love to go for long walks in the country. Yeah, but do you f- consider that fun if it doesn't involve making a pub stop off to get a few pints down your neck? So it's just very one note. Being drunk is so one note and it gets so bloody boring after you've been doing it for decades and decades as well, right? There's nothing new or surprising is going to happen. You've been through, you've been every type of drunk you can ever be, right? And so I stopped drinking and I discovered what things were actually legitimately interesting sources of fun and enjoyment and the things that were only bearable because I drank. So two good examples for me is one, Christmas. I love Christmas. I loved Christmas when I was a kid. Everyone does. I loved Christmas when I was a kid before I ever started drinking. And then I thought, well, I ruined Christmas between about 1988 and 2015 because every free Christmas was an excuse for legitimized daytime binge drinking, right? And so I was just drunk. So the idea that, that all the things on Christmas Day that make it wonderful, presents, food, family, relaxation, the absence of work, sitting around playing games, watching films, whatever, right? Those things, that's what life's about. That is joyful stuff, right? But if you're drunk, you're just drunk. You're not really engaging in that stuff. You're just like, those are sideshows to the main attraction, which is booze, right? So my first sober Christmas, I just engaged in it so much. And it kind of opened my eyes where I kind of found myself saying to my wife at some point in the afternoon, Christmas is bloody great, isn't it? And she's like, well, yeah, duh. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm really like enjoying it for the first time since like the mid 80s now. It's like, this is what it's all about. 
football, I really thought, oh my God, maybe football won't be so good, especially when you support a team that always loses like I do, right? And you go, <laughs> okay. maybe football's going to, football, cults, football, going to football is just surrounded entirely getting out of it before and after the game. Turns out I love football more than I even realised. And I've been going to football. It's just been part and parcel of my life. My whole social life revolved around it since childhood. And I love it more than ever. I go with my son. But like I say, I still meet up with my old mates who I've known since I was a kid there. And me and my son, who's 11, we sit and watch the game. I love it. I watch the game with much more focus, much more attention, really absorbed. You remember the game afterwards. I remember the game. I'm absorbed in it. If we lose, I feel sad. I kind of honour honor that sadness, but I'm a bit more mature about processing it and getting on with life. If we win, I really, really enjoy it a lot more than I ever did before. Because like I say before, win, lose, what they say, win, win, draw or lose, always on the booze, right? That was a phrase that footballers used to use. And it was the same for fans. It's like, it actually doesn't make a difference what happens in the game. You're just there to be pissed. And the feeling of being pissed yeah, will be the yeah. same, whatever the result's been. But there are other things that I realised I did, and it'll be different for a person, that I realised were so boring in sobriety that I realised, oh, right, I only did those things. I could only do those yes. things whilst drunk. Because actually, in the cold light of sobriety, they're absolutely tedious and dull to me. They wouldn't be to everyone. Absolutely. I was talking to a lady the other day in our community, and she was saying that when she was drinking, she had this identity. You talk a lot about identity in your book, but she had an identity as being this fabulous cook. She used to, you know, enjoy all these compliments and she was always entertaining. And then she gave up drinking and then she realised that she actually hated cooking. And the only reason <laughs> it was fun was because she was always drinking during the cooking yeah. process. Yeah, that's Cooking's quite over, she yeah, hated I know a, it. I know a guy yeah, like that. It's so like interesting. The, really, and I used to be a bit like that. I used to, I still like to cook, but I used to sometimes go right, we're going to have people around on Sunday and I'm going to cook a huge roast. And I'd go out and I'd spend loads of money at the shop on, you know, an expensive joint of meat. And then I'd go and buy expensive wine. I didn't know anything about wine. But in my mind, as I got a bit more middle-aged, I thought, well, this is another way to legitimise drinking is to go and spend 20 quid on a bottle instead of eight quid on a bottle and make out that I'm into it, not for the alcohol, but in it for the, like, you know, the the, the sophisticated pleasures. And it really, it would just I'd go back and I'd just drink beers all the way through the sort of three-hour cooking process. And then yeah, when, the, yeah. when we sat down, get stuck into the wine and then carry on after that with more drinks. And ever, the amount of yeah. things you assemble in your life just to sort of basically facilitate drinking yeah. is yeah. absurd. Yeah. People say you've got to find new hobbies, and that's true, I have. But also, there was so much joy and pleasure and fun in my life already that I just wasn't really engaging properly with because I was numbed out by a drink. You know? Absolutely. Wow. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. So let's talk about your book a bit, Sam. So I've just finished it. As you know, I loved it. I particularly like the subtitle, which is Mental Health Without the Bollocks. (laughs) So why did you write this book and who is it for? I wrote it probably because it was the book that I needed myself probably 10 12 years ago not when the 
drinking was at its worst. It was a bit before that, but when I first sort of started to get really bad bouts of depression and anxiety and kept it all inside because I thought this is really I, I felt embarrassed and ashamed by it I thought who am I to have these feelings when my life is on the face of it a very good pleasurable life I wanted to write a book that would say to any people who are in the same position look it's all right to feel the way you do you don't have to have suffered some sort of extreme form of trauma in order to justify feeling low or anxious or any of these other things. It happens to all of us. We're human beings. Talk about it, share it, own it, and things will become better. And in my case, I didn't do those things. And therefore, that was what the catalyst was to my problem drinking. And so I wrote a book to sort of say to people, I hope there's something in there that everyone can relate to. The reason I gave it that subtitle, Mental Health Without All the Bollocks, was because I thought it was the quickest way to tell people this is not the usual self-help book with a load of psychobabble. This is for blokes like me, who yeah. are the sort of blokes who I believe are some of the people who need help most. Suicide remains the biggest killer of men under 45 in the UK. Blokes like me from my background are the least likely to open up about their feelings. Very often they're the most likely to be suffering from stress and depression. I don't have anything unique or original to say, really, but the way in which I say it is different. Yeah. Because Absolutely. the lessons in this book might be the same that you would get from any other kind of, you know, any other sort of book on mental health or sobriety you could pick off the shelf in the bookshop. All I've done is tell it in my own voice, right? And it's yeah. a voice that is devoid of any psychobabble. It won't make you feel like a hippie. It will relate to blokes who've grown up like me and they will hopefully see things in there. They think, oh God, that's how I felt. And I'll be going, yeah. I'll be giving them permission to sort of feel pain and feel bad about things that have happened to them in their life and do something about it and maybe address their drinking in a way that is not not make them feel like this world is one of being boring and earnest and self-important and whingy or patronising. It doesn't have to be like that. I hope that there's a laugh on almost every page in this book, right? There is. Um, it's hilarious. And your, your yeah. chapter headings are brilliant. I love the one that says things like how to tell your mates when you're feeling down or something. And your story yeah. about those two teenage friends of yours that had both lost their mums you know and one of them came yeah. round to your house and you put on the madness uh, video because <laughs> you didn't yeah. quite know how to make him feel better it was so sweet <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, I love the chapter headings I had a long corporate career in London very work hard play hard you know what that means so that's why I ended up alcohol dependent so when I read your words the grind is bullshit and we need to glamorize rest. I thought, oh, why didn't someone say that to me 30 years ago? Yeah. I love that. So talk yeah, to us I a think, bit about that. How can we glamorize I, I rest? Well, there's a huge amount of guilt, isn't there, um, associated with rest. The sort of family I grew up in and my culture, Margaret Thatcher and Thatcherism was actually anathema yeah. to us. Do you know what I mean? We were not yeah, Thatcherites politically, quite the opposite. And yet... When you start working, you realise we all are culturally, in a way, people of our generation. Yeah. Because, you know, whether you consider yourself left-wing, right-wing or whatever, most people were like, I need to really prove that I'm willing to work hard. I don't want to come across as a spoiled layabout. 
And therefore, any period of not basically doing your best and really putting a shift in made you feel like I'm spoiled, I'm pathetic, I'm a layabout, I'm wasting the opportunities that I've been given, all of these other negative connotations. People don't feel good about rest. I was a free, I've been freelance most of my career and it took me years to understand that actually it's very important to utilize the fact that you are freelance to do things like go for a nap in a day, which I do quite regularly yeah. whenever I feel things good. are getting on top of me. I can't meditate. I've tried and, uh, and I will master it one of these days. But what I can do is nap on demand at any moment. If I start to feel stressed or angry or resentful or bitter or any of those emotional triggers that used to trigger my drinking, I will sometimes spot that in myself, which, by the way, I never did when I was younger. I couldn't spot it. I was like a toddler. You know, I'd be like, someone Mm. would go, well, maybe you're tired. I'm not tired like that. Now I spot it in myself very clearly. I can go upstairs, lie on my bed, shut my eyes, and within moments I'm asleep. And then I'll wake up half an hour later and it'll all be forgotten about and I'll be good. And I will not have an ounce of guilt about that. Quite the opposite. I will feel good about myself because I'll be thinking, what's more important than looking after myself? I can't be the best dad that I can be or the best husband or even the best at my work if I am knackered and grumpy. But it's such a long road to get to that point. Lockdown helped me a huge amount. Because you start yes. to engage with that without any guilt. It took a lot of guilt away for so many people because you had no other option yeah. but to sometimes chill out. And so then you start chilling out more. And the more you do it, the more you warm to it. And you start thinking, this is quite good. It's having a really good effect on me. It's making me a nicer person. It's making me a healthier person. It's making me a happier person. It really makes me much better better dad and husband and friend right and son because I'm not grumpy and I'm more available and so that was really I was already heading in that direction mentally but I still really struggled with days where I hadn't quite managed to finish my to-do list or I hadn't quite been productive and had enough work to show at the end of it and I hadn't also been to the gym or for a long run now I just listen to my body more and I just sort of think culturally we need to celebrate rest and celebrate yeah. and I kind of glory in it. So you know, like people used to say, How you how are you doing? How are you? And you go, I'm good, I'm busy, I'm really busy. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, it's a, and then the other person goes, Yeah, I'm really busy too. That sort of stuff used to really trigger me when I was secretly going through all of my problem drinking, my depression, and I was hiding it from everyone. Every conversation I'd have felt like it was competitive about who was the busiest or that people were judging me that I wasn't successful anymore, or that I wasn't busy enough and that things were going badly. When I dropped all of that and decided to sort of judge myself on my own terms and my own criteria, a really narrow way to judge yourself was how much you had produced that way. Like you were some sort of machine or robot yeah. built for like just producing stuff and contributing to the economy. Oh, it's re- you can go down really dark paths. I know a lot of people are still like it. I've got a mate who recently went freelance for the first time in his life and he came to me and I was flattered because he said, I want to talk to you about how to cope with freelance work because in my life, you're the best freelancer I've ever known in terms of the way you manage your time. You know, you've always been busy and got a lot done, but you've, you, and I, and I thought, first of all, I thought, well, that's ironic because I actually, in the end, just went a bit crazy and became an alcoholic. So obviously I wasn't doing <laughs> it as well as you thought I was, but he probably thought that, you know, I appeared to be successful and doing lots of good things professionally. 
I said, I probably would have said to you, if you'd asked me 10, 15 years ago, the most important thing was to have a, a really strict routine that mirrored exactly the routine of someone in a normal corporate job. So you have to get up. You have to get up and shave and shower and be at your desk by 8 a.m. And you need to be very strict with your breaks and you need to do this, that and the other. And I said, that's what I would have said to you then. Now I kind of say the opposite. I was like, well, you go with each day. You know, routines are healthy. Of course, I'm not saying they're not. But you have to listen more to what your needs are. And if you have the opportunity, because you're a freelancer, to take time out and go along to the cinema or just go out for a walk in the park or have a nap or any of the other things that help you switch off, then you should really prioritise those above your productivity because, you know, you're, you're much more important than any of that work. So when people say to you, how are you? What do you say? Sometimes I say, I'm really good. Sometimes I will, I'll go, I'm great. I've had three really solid naps this week <laughs> or something like that. I like really like focus on that because the other thing is when I first wrote about myself, I'd been writing for 20 years, 25 years, whatever. I'd, I'd had a successful career as a writer, but I hadn't done that much about myself I'd written bits and bobs about myself, but my priority had always been to be funny and self-deprecating, right? And when I first started writing stuff that was more honest and sincere and vulnerable, I got a huge response. And I realized that the reason I got a huge response is that people in particular wouldn't expect it from me and a bloke like me because of my persona, yeah, which was yeah. always being daft and always being Jack the Lad. And I think the more unexpected you are, the more attention you will get from people and the more they'll listen. Because, mm. I, you know, I've got this book out. It's been getting a lot of attention. That's great. I do these podcasts. I've always been busy in my career. So when people ask me how I'm doing and I start bragging about the amount that I've been resting and the amount of time I've taken out, I think that has a big impact on people because they expect me I'm to sure say the opposite because I've sure always had this very yeah. productive career. Yeah, And I still yeah. do. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I still love work and I still have a tendency sometimes to take it too far. But I think it's important for me to say to people, yeah, it's been really good. Oh, it was half term last week. So all the book stuff was getting a bit on top. So I, me and my son just went to Bruges for a few days together just to chill out and, yeah. you know, eat chocolate. I like to sort of say that to people a lot because they can see, by the way, it's again, it's not binary. It doesn't mean you have to cash in your career and, and accept that you're not going to be successful or achieve any of your ambitions. You still can. My next book that I'm working on already is going to be about that, about the cult of work and Fantastic. how workaholism yeah. well, has, has sort of defined a lot of my life. We're relying on you to to lead this culture change. <laughs> You've got to have <laughs> us all resting best. more. I'll do what I can from this side of the world. Back to one of your brilliant chapter headings, life is about one thing. What's that? Everyone's got a different thing, but you need to work out what it is and just hmm. focus on that. So... Don't try to be a million different people from one day to the next, which is what I was for many years. From a yes. ch from childhood onwards, I had, I had different personas that I was juggling constantly depending on the company I was in. I had yeah. all different criteria by which I rated myself and my success or how satisfied I was or where my self-esteem was. You know, maybe I'd be trying to prove to one person I was extremely intelligent and sophisticated, but to another person, I'd be wanting them to think that, in fact, I was a sort of a straightforward yob. 
and then I might be trying to prove something else to someone else, like I was very trendy and cool or whatever. And there's all these different things that you juggle, and you're it really it's all about you trying to impress other people and get validation yeah, from other people. It's exhausting. And and it's really exhausting because you're playing all these different roles and you're never quite living up to any of these things that you want to be because you, you you're confusing yourself about what it is that you will what criteria you judge yourself by but once you sort of drop all of that crap and have like more of an authentic sense of who you are and who you want to be then you've got a clearly defined established set of criteria for yourself whether you're a good person or a bad person whether you're doing well or whether you're not and in my case as cheesy as it sounds I thought what really makes me happy consistently and actually it's my domestic life it's my relationship with my wife and children and I know who I need to be in that relationship for myself crucially not to just make them happy but to make myself happy because it was never about people always think and you'll know this people when they ask you they always think you're gonna go I did it for my kids and I just go no I didn't I didn't do it for my kids I did it for myself. If I'd done it for my wife and kids, if I said, well, I wanted to carry on drinking, but my wife said, no, I'll leave you if you don't stop drinking. People always sort of seem to want me to say that. She never gave me an mm. ultimatum. Mm. If she had, and that was the reason I wasn't drinking, that would be that I was living a life where I actually wanted to drink. Like every day I fancied a drink yeah. and I, 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 no. I longed for that life, but I had had to abstain from it and sacrifice it because of because if not I'd lose my wife. That's no way to live. No, you know that I gave work. up that because doesn't work. I, yeah, it doesn't work. But I, often people want to feel it's like the rock bottom conversation. They want to feel as if you've yeah, given yeah. an ultimatum. But you have yeah, to love yeah. the life that you're living because then it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. So that's it, really. I, I had one clear vision of myself. I finally, got to one clear vision of myself and the person I wanted to be, and all the other stuff work or excitement or any of the other things yeah that's still a bonus in my life I still like to work and I still like to achieve things and have success and I still like to hang out my mates and make them laugh and and all of this stuff but really that's all bonus side stuff it's not how I judge myself or rate myself my self-esteem really is pinned to how well I'm doing you know within the context of my small family unit and how well we're yeah. getting on and how yeah. happy we are and how, how much I'm there for them and they're there for me and then I'm happy. And I've got no shame anymore about the uglier bits of myself, which I'm able to just celebrate and be honest about and laugh about. And once you get that, the truth sets you free and you can just get on with yeah. being you. And I think sobriety enables us to discover who we really are and what we want to do and what makes us happy and comfortable, doesn't it? Because before, yeah. when you're drinking, you don't really know. You just think, well, I want to do do this and do that and it's all related to drinking so yeah sobriety enables us to get in touch with our feelings you talked about that earlier as well and discover who we are and what we want to do with our life you know that's what it's certainly done for me yeah clarity you just get so much clarity don't you that's the thing i know absolutely absolutely a chapter that i identified with very much was thank you alcohol Because the Mm. fact that we've been through this struggle, you know, we've been through to the wall, if you like, and had to deconstruct and reinvent ourselves almost. It's a blessing and it's a blessing that a lot of people don't have. A lot of those sensible drinkers don't get the privilege, do they? No, I think Thank You Alcohol, from from memory at least, is probably my favourite chapter in which I feel like I encapsulate 
really all of my thoughts about this stuff in the in the neatest and and, and most clear way. You know, when you write a book like this, a lot of the stuff from one chapter to the next is you're kind of grappling around trying to express what you feel and think about these experiences you've had and, and what your life is like. And then in some of the chapters, I, re- I read them back and thought, oh, actually, yeah, that one nails it. And I, I think that one is, is it because, as we've said throughout this whole conversation, I just sort of feel that if alcohol hadn't led me to that point of desperation... I'd have never opened up to all of these other wonderful things in life. My yeah. mind opened up the way that I'm so much more curious about everything in life now and that I'm always looking for new things to read about or experience. Just so many new sources of pleasure and joy, but also discovering so many ones, small, tiny things that already existed in my life that I can now yeah. derive such a huge buzz out of. Like my son comes home yeah. from school. He walks himself home from school at 3.30 and most days I'm at home and I have a little office in my garden, but I know at 3.30 he'll be coming home. So I'll set an alarm for myself, stop what I'm doing and I'll go over and he'll come in and he'll immediately get changed out of his school uniform and I'll put the kettle on and we just have a little routine where he comes in, he says, stick the kettle on, he goes straight up, says he comes down, I'll make us a bit of toast, we'll have a cup of tea and we'll both sit and talk over our day. I get a buzz out of it. I would have done that sort of thing. Don't get me wrong. When I was drinking, that's the sort of thing I might have done, but I would have thought I was a bit boring because it, it wasn't being out pissed Or you, you'd have a crazy. beer in your hand and you weren't really listening maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whereas like little things like that, the ritual of having a cup of tea with my son. Alcohol drove me to a point of crisis that then opened my mind to a new way of life, which is a wonderful one. Yeah, maybe if I'd just been one of those people who could drink, but it never got out of hand, I would have just not hit that crisis, not been incentivized to change my life so radically. And maybe I'd just be kind of neither happy nor sad, just kind of yeah, coasting yeah. through life in a sort of hinterland. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That That's how I sometimes, Absolutely. I don't know if that's no. true, yeah. but I, I think maybe it is, mm. you know. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen it. There's a book by someone called Laura McCowan. It's called We Are the Luckiest. And I think that's a great title. I don't know it, but I'll make a note of that now. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in and just shoot the breeze about alcohol free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. So, Sam, imagine someone's listening to this, and they are where you were in your late 30s, where I was a bit later on in life, really kind of knowing that something's got to change, but they just don't know where to where to go what to do maybe they're not lucky enough to live around the corner from the priory what, yeah. what's the starting point you know where can they start first of all show yourself a bit of love and kindness don't feel that you have to live this way don't indulge yourself in thoughts like oh i don't deserve to feel bad or some people have got it worse than me Listen, we're all human beings, right? And if you're struggling with feelings of sadness or paranoia, anxiety, whatever they might be, know that's normal. Know that every single person goes through it. Don't beat yourself up about it. Instead, be honest about it. Own it. Share it. You might not be ready to go and speak to a therapist. You might certainly not be ready to go and sit in a room with a bunch of other people and share it in a group. That might not be for you right now. 
But just be able to open up in a casual way to a mate or someone who you trust. It doesn't have to be a big, heavy talk where you're looking for pity. You won't necessarily get pity. You just sort of say, yeah, I'm feeling shit. I'm skin or I can't stop worrying about this, that or the other. You know, little baby steps like that make a difference. And in terms of not drinking, you know, there's short term and long term. Hopefully our discussion today has made my thoughts on the long term benefits of a sober life clear. But in terms of short term, Think of it this way. Give it a go because one thing that my therapist said to me on the first meeting we had was, I said, it's all very well you saying why not drinking long term is going to make me a better person with a better life. I said, but actually, I know that later on today and tomorrow and the next day, I will wake up or at some point in the day have huge pangs to just have a drink to take away the bad feelings that I've got. And she said, yeah, you will. Two things. One, play that tape forward a bit and think about yeah. where that drink will lead to next. That's quite a well-known one. But the other phrase she said was, um, no one ever regretted not having a drink, did they? And I thought, what? And I thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You wake up pretty much every day having had a drink the night before, whether you've had one drink or ten drinks. To a degree, you'd always feel it a bit in the morning. You think, oh, shit, why did I have that? A little bit of you would. But no one ever woke up on a Saturday morning with energy and uh, and the absence of a headache and a dry mouth and thought to themselves, oh, bollocks, I really wish I'd had a drink last night. Why didn't I have a drink? I mean, what does that tell you? You have never woken up sober and regretted being sober Absolutely. and not hung over, right? Absolutely. And that thought was quite a practical one for me in the early days, right? And that got me through the early days and... After that, it was all about sharing. Sharing is the most important thing. Not everyone can afford therapy. Not everyone has access to therapy or rehab. And I also understand that not everyone feels comfortable right away with the idea of AA and 12 steps, right? I get that. I'm a believer in it, but I've never completed my 12 steps. I, I have a sort of a hybrid approach to my recovery, which involves <laughs> attending meetings. You know, I go through phases of attending meetings. I go to therapy. I run my own little community you know, and I read a lot and engage a lot with this sort of subject matter. But, you know, it is there and it's available to everyone. But even if you're not ready for that yet, the principle of sharing and being a bit more open about what you're going through, you will be amazed by the amount of empathy and kindness that you experience, yeah. sometimes from the least likely people, once you open up about this stuff. And then all the shame you feel and the isolation and loneliness you feel will quickly disappear. And in fact, your perception of life will change very quickly into one that's a lot more positive because we're surrounded by negativity in the news these days. But the truth is, is that, you know, I, I believe people are actually kind human beings are kind yeah. and they want to help each yeah. other and you'll really see that when you open up about your feelings I did yeah yeah I must admit this experience in my life you know I'm seven years sober just like you it's it's restored my faith in human nature <laughs> yeah yeah I'm reading yeah. a great book and by Rutger Bregman called Humankind and it taps into that in, in more of a kind of an academic scientific way where there's so many studies. Most academic studies over the years, most people have assumed that actually Lord of the Flies was almost like a parable for humanity and that we're all basically savages and civilization is just a very thin veneer that disguises what we really are. But in fact, throughout history, there's more evidence, there's almost overwhelming evidence that human beings are naturally kind and cooperative and want to help each yeah. other. That's supported by my experience of sobriety. Mine too, mine too. So, Sam, the book's called Sort Your Head Out. 
I think it's only actually been released in the UK, but of course you can download it on Amazon as a Kindle edition wherever you are in the world. And you can also download it as an audio book, which I narrated. And that seems to be selling, uh, unusually, that seems to be selling as well as the hard copies at the moment. People seem to have responded well to that. Yeah, you get that on Audacity or or, or Amazon and you get, get the book and the Kindle on Amazon. I'm doing signed dedicated ones via my local bookshop, which is Barnes Bookshop. And people are ordering them from there. And I stroll around there every day, sign whatever orders they've had, write a little message, and they send them off in some lovely packaging. Yeah, they've sent them all the way to Australia. So they'll definitely be able to make South Africa. Podcast is the reset, isn't it? Yeah. The the one that talks about sobriety. You're on Instagram, Sam Delaney, is it, on Instagram? Uh, It's the Reset Sam on Instagram. On Twitter, I'm at Delaney Man. And my Reset newsletter, where you can get my weekly writing about sobriety, but also the podcast is available there as well, is on Substack. So that's samdelaney.substack.com. If you go on there, I've got like a couple of years worth of interviews with really interesting people some of them famous some of them not about sobriety and mental health thank you so much sam you're such an inspiration sam's drinking career got off to a pretty early start at the age of 12 he would go to the park with his friends drinking cans of warm beer that they'd nick from their parents houses he thought nothing of it It it's just what kids did totally normalized We agreed that times have changed and that a lot of teenage drinking came from the fact that we had so much time on our hands in those days. Time to drink, time to smoke weed and time to get into fights. As Sam puts it, violence was a kind of hobby to pass the time. Of course, these days, kids spend so much of their spare time online, which does, of course, have a positive side to it. In real terms, the stats tell us that the UK streets are actually safer than they were in the 1980s, in spite of those constant headlines about knife crime. Sam's drinking didn't become problematic until his late 30s, when his lifestyle hit a perfect storm. The combined pressures of his career, young family, hectic social life, as well as maintaining his Jack the Lad identity, left him exhausted exhausted mentally, physically and emotionally. We talked about those false narratives that are common among drinkers and Sam's internal narrative was that he was doing all this for the family. The drink and drugs were acting as fuel to get him through the day and night. The fun was long gone. Another false narrative he held was that it wasn't harming anyone, whereas in fact his wife was becoming increasingly worried. If she expressed concern, he would become hostile and tell her not to try and control him. We agreed that the term rock bottom was yet another false narrative and that the last thing we should do is to wait for that rock bottom. Far better to step off the slippery slope as soon as possible rather than think you're fine until you get to that rock bottom. We agreed that drinking feels rebellious and a bit like freedom at first, but for some of us it eventually becomes a prison and makes our life very small. We lose the ability to enjoy everyday pleasures. Sam gave a great example of that. He couldn't really see the point of a walk in the country unless the destination was a pub. That says it all.
Towards the end of his drinking, Sam would wake up each morning feeling awful and resolving not to drink that day. But of course he always did. He was trapped in the prison of Groundhog Day. As he got older, he indulged in yet another false narrative. The one about, if you're drinking expensive wine, then you must be a connoisseur rather than someone with a drinking problem. But of course, whether a bottle of wine costs you £20 or £8, it's all ethanol. Out of desperation, he booked a session with a therapist at the Priory and that started his recovery. I love the fact that Sam chose what he calls a hybrid approach to his recovery. A bit of AA, a bit of therapy, a lot of reading and most importantly community support and sharing. The modern recovery movement offers a pathway for everybody. There's no reason why we can't mix and match the various approaches. We need to throw the book at our sobriety and do whatever it takes. Just do whatever works for us. With seven years of sobriety, Sam can look back on his journey and realise that he'd actually been white-knuckling it for those first couple of years. It was only a work crisis that made him re-evaluate and realise that he had to go deeper. He'd been isolating and realised that he had to do the work. And part of that work for Sam has been connecting with people in recovery and having conversations for his podcast or his articles. I've done pretty much the same and learned so much from my podcast guests. One of his lightbulb moments during sobriety was that it wasn't a binary choice. He didn't have to choose between being Jack the Lad, the drinker, or the sober, serious hippie talking in psychobabble, as he puts it. He could still be Jack the Lad, but it would be a sober Jack the Lad with a bit more self-awareness and self-compassion. And I loved what he said about how boring drinking gets after a few decades, about how nothing different ever happens. Whereas sobriety is a real adventure and most people have no idea how awesome their alcohol-free life will be before they embark on the journey. Sam made the very important point that when we ditch the booze, we can start to examine our life and discover what we do that are actually legitimate sources of fun. In other words, still fun even without the drink. As examples, Sam mentioned Christmas and football. Conversely, What did we waste time on because they were only bearable because they were accompanied by alcohol? Alcohol actually dumbs us down, which can result in us wasting time doing stuff or hanging out with people we don't really enjoy. He's written his book, Sort Your Head Out, Mental Health Without the Bollocks, for people who are feeling anxious, depressed and just not knowing how to cope. The book title is a clear message that this is not the usual self-help book. It's actually aimed at people who would probably never touch a self-help book with a barge pole. We have to remember that suicide is the biggest killer of men under 45 in the UK, and I think this book of Sam's will save lives. It's actually the book he needed himself 10 years ago, when he was feeling anxious, depressed and unable to cope. If he'd read the book, he feels he could have avoided his 10-year descent into alcoholism. Personally, I love the book and it's worth buying for the brilliant subtitles alone. One of the subtitles is Glamorise Rest. Or to be more precise, the grind is bullshit, so let's glamorise rest. 
Since the Thatcherism of the 80s, we've all been encouraged to keep our noses to the grindstone and it's been a badge of honour to be busy all the time. This culture simply led many people to burn out. It's time for a change, to change the competitive nature of busyness and start showing off about how many naps we had yesterday. Sam's favourite chapter, and mine, is called Thank You Alcohol. We were both driven to a point of crisis by alcohol, a crisis that actually opened us up to a new way of life. Had we been normal drinkers, we wouldn't have been so incentivized to do the work and to change our lives quite so radically. I asked him for some tips for newbies. He quoted his therapist who recommended playing the movie forward when hit by cravings and she also reminded him that nobody ever regrets having had a drink the previous evening. How true. We both agreed on the importance of sharing, that huge relief we feel when we realise there's actually nothing wrong with us. We just got addicted to an addictive substance like 20% of social drinkers do. If you're looking for a safe and supportive community where you can share your ups and downs, please go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe and read about the support we offer. Do grab a copy of Sam's book. Not only will you enjoy it, but the chances are that you know someone battling with depression who really needs to read it. I read it on Kindle. It's available on Amazon and any London-based listeners can simply pop down to Barnes Bookshop and get a signed copy from Sam when he pops in for his daily visit. You can check out his podcast, which is called The Reset, and you can also subscribe to his newsletter on Substack. He's on Twitter and Instagram as well. I'll put all the info in the show notes. Let me end with a lovely testimonial from one of our US members, Ellen. I love to see you encouraging folks to do the 66 days. It's such a big help to get past those first 30 days and add some craving free time. Time to see the benefits from our brains clearing out. I'm a newish member of Tribe Sober and the boot camp was a fantastic start. I'm so thankful to have received such loving and kind advice from Tribe Sober. Joining this group is the best thing I've ever done for myself. Such a non-judgmental and informative group that truly understands we need to find our way. It's a personal journey and our goals are all different. Thank you so much for the kind words, Ellen. You're doing so well on your sobriety journey. Your tribe is proud of you. You heard Ellen mentioning the 66-day challenge and the free boot camp, both of which start on the 20th of March, so please go to tribesober.com homepage and check them out. And if you signed up for our challenge and you're wondering what to drink when you don't drink, then you'll be pleased to know that we've set up Sober 66 discounts with the Dry Goods Beverage Company in the US and Drink Nil in South Africa. So you can use this opportunity to experiment and find your go-to alcohol-free drinks. Last week's podcast was with Adrian from Dry Goods. She's got some great recommendations, so if you missed that one, have a listen. And for our UK listeners, I'd recommend checking out Club Soda. That's it from me. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, 
and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.